don't get a second crack at reputation. If you blow it, it's a long way back, you know. I'd say protect it with your life, you know. There was no retail experience, no money to get you started, just a yearning for success. I went in and I lifted a ring and I said, how much is this? And she said, 400 pounds, you know, and I was like, you can break far more rules as a startup than you can uh, as an established business. And like, and you're charging me a fiver, mate, and I know you're paying a pound for it. We don't have to pay a guy with an armoured vehicle to come down and empty the shop. Yeah. We, we've had so many big cash thefts out of our company over the years, you know, we we love cards. You've got you've got to be careful. It doesn't suit everybody, and it can it can be stressful. It can be lonely. It can ruin relationships. You know. So thank you so much, Pete, for coming on the Dick Podcast. Yes, thanks to the music. I'm not sure where. So Eye of the Tiger. Like you have the Eye of the Tiger. I I thought about this carefully. Uh, I bought that record. That's how old I am. So. So I was trying to match the music to the person, and when I think of him, it's like nobody's going to stand in the way of a tiger, and that's what I think of when I when I'm talking to Pete. So let's bring it back for those who don't know Pete um, to the early days. There was no retail experience, no money to get you started, just a yearning for success. Tell me about it. It's fascinating, but tell everybody else who's listening. Well, I got a TA level and. Uh... My friends had all gone off to college, and I said to my mum, "You know, I don't, I don't really want to go to university because I liked work. Um, I'd been working in a factory in Stravan, and I, I just liked the workplace. There was no exam at the end of the week. You know, if you worked harder than the next guy, you got the rewards, and your boss was pleased. You know, if you turned up earlier, he didn't complain. You know, uh, so in school, there was always a smarter guy, didn't work as hard, but always got better grades than you. And in football, you could train all you like, and the guy that hadn't turned up to training all week." He'd turn up and get picked, you know, but at work, if you didn't turn up, you'd get sacked. And I was the type of guy who tried everything, you know, so I was full of enthusiasm. I was, my mother used to describe me as a, a ball at a gate. She says, you're like a ball at a gate, Peter, you have no patience. Everything has to be now. And so a friend had made me a gift as a thank you for doing her a favor. It was a little piece of art. Uh, and I was touring around music festivals at the time, just going to the festivals. And I'd seen a lot of like hippie guys selling stuff at the festivals, and I thought that that could be me, you know. So I said, "Dear, make me make me twenty of those. I'll sell those at the Ballyshannon Folk Festival." And I'd sold them all by the Saturday night, but still a full day to go. So I phoned her and said, "You know, could you make me some more and get them up from Stravandi, Ballyshannon?" So she made me stayed up all night, made me another twenty, and I sold those on the Sunday. And in the process, I, I had. Uh, given a space to a guy and his wife. It was their first festival and they were selling jewellery. And we got on really well over the weekend. And when you're running a stall, somebody has to look after it when you go to the toilet or to get coffee. And so you work together as a kind of group and help each other out. And uh, Bernard and his wife at the end of it said, you know, Pete, uh, you should come up to Dublin. I'll, we'll introduce you to jewellery wholesalers. Um, he said, you know, it's much easier carrying earrings than that stuff that you're carrying, which was framed art, you know, so... I went up on, to Dublin, I made about 400 punts at the time and spent it all on jewellery and the, there was a little wholesale quarter on George Street and um, I went to Flack Huel, was in Sligo and I sold out on the Saturday, I made 1,200 punts. I remember taking a photograph, I got my mate Didi to take a photograph and put the money in my mouth. I said, I've never had this much money. Uh, and I took this photograph be with 12 I did ask him if he had the photo, but he's, he's I lost it. <laughs> the way I but um 
So that was my introduction to jewellery, and uh, I met a guy at this flag hill called Eric Byrne, uh, and he had this beautiful Dublin brogue, you know, and he lived in Spittle in Galway, and uh, he made uh, jewellery out of Irish coins that were just awesome, but I hung out with Eric some on the weekend, and Eric just had, he had a great way of selling, and nowadays he'd been Instagram, doing something on Instagram, those days he had to stand in the street, uh, but... Um, so I was good at it. I discovered I was good at I was good at selling, and I remember thinking, "This is what I want to do here." So I never worked for anybody again after that. That was kind of the last last time I ever got a job. I was about nineteen at the time. So your journey started with like the market stall kind of model, isn't that right? Yeah, it wasn't quite market stall because markets were markets were a bit dirty. You know, like they were kind of crap when Stavan was one, and it was on the end of was next to the cattle market, you know, so it was always really cheap stuff and blah, blah, blah. But I don't know, it's still, there's still stalls on O'Connell Street, so we would see the stalls on O'Connell Street, and those guys were my wholesalers, so there was like two or three guys imported all the goods, put them on O'Connell Street, and so we would go and set up places where you really weren't allowed to trade, you know, so the market was always at the back end of the town, so we'd go and find somewhere like the best pitch in town, which nearly always was the bank. So the banks tended, tended to have the best pitch in town, they closed at lunchtime on a Friday and they didn't open again until Monday. So all you had to do was find the bank manager's name. So if it was Mr. Doherty or Mr. Leahy, and you'd go in and ask the friend, what's the bank manager's name, Mr. Leahy? And then with the clues, you'd set up outside the bank and the police would come along and say, you'll have to move. And I'd say, oh, no, no, this is private property. And the bank manager, Mr. Leahy, said I could trade here all weekend. So uh, uh, there was no mobile phones, there was no way to contact the bank manager. So... You got the weekend out of out of the best pitch in town, you know. So that was kind of how we we always aimed straight for the bankhead for the bank on a Sundays. Pure pure guts there. Like so, you told me whenever um, we were chatting there last week that the like you kept getting tucked to court. I well, um, <laughs> no, you did. You said that. Well, Why not like to say that? We traded on a Saturday in Belfast, and so the police used to leave. Uh, the police station and walk around the town they'd get to us by one o'clock and they'd say he's have to move so we would always pack up but we knew the change shifted two o'clock so you'd go off and have lunch and by the time they got back to Musgrave Street you'd set up again and you knew the, the new shift wouldn't get back to six o'clock which times it was going home time and so as long as you had a lunch break you generally didn't get arrested and then so one of the days this police officer with the big white stripes he must have been an inspector and he's out and he leaned over and said to me, you know, Mr. Boyle, uh, you're not breaking any criminal code. He said, so I actually don't have the power to move you on. And I'm like going, well, I've been moving on for about a year. He said, well, if you want to stand there, it's up to the council to prosecute you. It's not up to me. I said, happy days. So I'll not move then. So that stage then, Belfast, I was at college doing uh, a degree in business because my mum, uh, you know, being from Sturban, Education was really important, so I wanted to keep me more happy. So I was doing a degree in business uh, at Georgetown. It was only three days a week, fourteen hours. So I was running a stall the whole way through college, and uh, but the council had decided to start taking our names and prosecuting us. You know, so I just I'd, I'd, I'd kind of fancied my wife at Queens. I used to sell uh, the students used to get the grant in September, so there was grants back then. So. Uh, I'd set up inside the door of Student Union. It was dry and hot, and uh, everybody had a grant, so I could sell them earrings and belts. And uh, 
So I'd met my wife there at the union and I fancied her. And then one day I'm down in court and I'm sitting uh, and I was up on a load of street <laughs> charges and the council couldn't get me fined. The judges used to not fine us because they quite liked it. Uh, the first ceasefire had come along. People would say, oh, it's a sign of normality coming back to Belfast. We're more like Dublin. So we were positively encouraged, uh, apart from the council. So my wife walks up and she's in full barrister gear and she says, oh, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm here on a licensing matter. Uh, what I didn't tell her is I didn't have a license, that it was being prosecuted. And like, so uh, that went on for a while and then eventually the council came, came down heavy on us and fined us substantial amounts of money. And uh, Kira said to me, it's time to, you're going to have to, you're going to have to open a shop, you know, so we... So before you jump on to open uh, the shop, um, that takes guts to keep going to court and keep, you know, getting fines. Yeah? Well, in Strabane, we used to say they didn't consult us when they made the rules, so they don't count. You know, that was kind of, that was kind of, and you grew up in Strabane, you had a healthy disdain for public authority, you know, so uh, uh, I recommend everybody that, that should continue. So I suppose if we're bringing that to modern day world, I'm trying to think how to turn that around for us. <laughs> you know, taking risks, what you said to me, like no one was going to die if I parked my stall there. And, you know, you did say that to me. You were weighing up, you know, the the, the goals and, and how, how you know, what the outcome was going to be. And yeah. then you decided whether to take that risk. Well, not all entrepreneurship is, is good entrepreneurship. Yes, you, you know, that. so you, you have drug dealers are great entrepreneurs. You know, they go to Columbia and they import their product. And I, but it's not good for society, you know. If you're standing selling a pair of earrings in Belfast, was anybody really getting hurt? You know, I, you know, I wasn't a bad person for selling jewelry on Royal Avenue, so we broke rules that were. I mean, Let's Go Hydro is the same. So we had bought uh, Let's Go Hydro was a reservoir. I'd bought it from a, from a kayaking, which is what I was into, um, and we couldn't get planning permission. It was like complicated. The road wasn't good enough, and you know, the case was: do we sit and wait for four years for for permission, or is anybody really going to uh, suffer if we let people jump in the lake and swim? So I think it'll go ahead and open, you know. So we built the aquapark there with more or less no no planning at all, you know. In fact, we still don't have planning, but that, but uh, but um, but uh, hopefully that's coming through <laughs> any time soon. See you in court. <laughs> so we're, I think we've invested about nine million in the site with virtually no planning permission, but. Uh, Again, we kind of summed up, you know, will they give us it? They'll probably give us it eventually. Uh, you know, they'll just take an awful long time to get to where I want to get, and I need to get there much quicker than them. So, uh, and that is a recurring theme, you know. But it is a recurring thing. Uh, and and to bring it back to us again, without us getting stuck in court, um, <laughs> I'm trying to think. Uh, no, I suppose what I take out of that is, like, I was telling, I was telling my daddy about you, you know. Mm. I was matching that, and he yes. was, you're a bang, maybe, but um, <laughs> And um, I says, daddy, I met this man, and he says, you know, you should just do it, and if, if nobody's going to die, and, you know, nobody's going to get hurt, you should take that risk. He says, damn. Well, I'm not saying what he yeah, did. Yeah. Damn right he was, damn right he was. So I, I take great, like, I get inspired by that. I don't know about all of you, but I'm like, yes. Hey, I'm going to take that risk and launch that course or send that person here today, here, you wouldn't give me a hand. That's how I'm putting it into our way. But like you were doing it in such a fearless, huge strength that worked out yeah. so well. I mean, you do have to be careful too. You know, I talk about self-awareness, you know, yes. so, um, when I was street training and I had nothing and you could tell a story in court, um, you know, the judge always doing a degree. My wife just didn't defend me and she'd say, oh, this poor young fella's doing a degree to fund the studies and the judge had a kid who'd be at college and you think, why are they prosecuting them? This is ridiculous. 
I'll throw it out of court. But you know, now we're quite a large business and I remember trying to tell a similar story and I can remember the people in the table looking at me going, but you're huge, you know, and so self-awareness of your own position and you know, us breaking the rules, not so funny anymore. Um, and so you, you do have to be a lot more conscious of, of what people think of you before um, you, you can do things, you know, so you get off, you can get away with an awful lot when you're a startup, you know, uh, you can break far more rules as a startup than you can uh, as an established business. And so certainly as a startup, I think you, you've got to play play a little bit loose with, with what people are telling you to do, you know. Push the boundaries. Yes, very much so. Yeah, um, and it's different times now too. Like, I don't think you get away with half that um, these days. But good for you, you did, or you wouldn't be sitting, well, you probably would be sitting here anyway, going by the way you are. But um, it's just amazing to hear that. And I think it gives you great, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this done. So, look, that attitude of um, not going to hurt anyone, you said you're going to open your shop then because you grew, outgrew the market kind of um, stall, and that was in 1997. So yeah. things started to move quick then, didn't they? Yeah, this is, we're 25 years in business um, last November there. So um, we would have had a big party only for COVID. <laughs> so we didn't break that rule. But, um, <laughs> but uh, so we'll have to have the party this year. But we, um, I knew then we had to get a shop. I'd been in London and uh, I'd seen uh, a shop called Janet Fitch. Uh, it was a very cool jewellery store with glass. So, so and back then, most jewellery stores were were really old-fashioned, you know. So uh, we, Janet Fitch had all this glass and plastic and it just looked awesome. People were queued out the street and uh, I went in and I lifted a ring and I said, how much is this? And she said, £400, you know, and I was like, and I knew I could buy that. I could buy that ring for $2 in Mexico. And I was thinking... Hold on, well, my customer won't pay four hundred dollars, but or four hundred pounds, but they might pay forty pounds. So I'll just make the shop look exactly like this, modern, totally cool, and I will uh, just get the price point that my customer will pay. So we took the kind of concept and then we delivered it more or less identical to what Jenna Fitch was doing in a tiny little store, it was the size of a closet it was like a walk-in wardrobe uh, if you'd, uh, oh yeah uh, i'm sure your, your wardrobe's much bigger but uh, uh but it was a tiny little space and so and it was just a chance I, we there's an awful lot of luck and business you know and they say you make your own look but i literally was about to sign on a really bad unit i was going around to sign the lease and as i walked past this the shop and what is anderson mccauley's uh Zara, there was a painter painting this this staircase under the basement and I opened the door I says mate what's going on here and he goes oh it's a new small shop and I was had he phoned the other landlord and go I'm not coming around there mate <laughs> I'd taken the shop you know so and then that was quite interesting too because you learn as you go on I remember the lease negotiations for this little tiny postage stamp of a shop it was £100 a week £5,000 a year and uh, my solicitor who someone had recommended was arguing over a clause in the lease that involved knocking down internal walls. I couldn't knock down internal walls, and there was all sorts of clauses. And I was like, but there is no internal walls. Just leave it in there. Why does it matter? You know. And eventually, this lister was it was going on for months, and the agent said to me, "If you don't sign this lease, you know you're not getting it." So I said, "Where's the bed?" And I signed. You know, my solicitor's going, "You can't do that." And I was like, "Watch me." You know, uh, because it was so. You just had to. Get, I mean, nowadays where we are much more experienced in terms of leases. And you look back at your younger self and think, you know, I wish I'd known that then. And every day is a learning day. You know, you, every day you learn, uh, you make mistakes. Every mistake you make, uh, you just make sure you don't re repeat it, you know. <laughs> so 
that you'd only make a mistake once, you know, and that, that goes under my mind. The Dig podcast would not be possible if it wasn't for the support of the fantastic partners who team up with us each series. Series 6 is in partnership with Invest NI, my new business. Mia was starting a new business and needed financial assistance and advice. She visited my new business and accessed a directory of local support schemes. From grants and loans to advisory support, there was help available for her specific needs. Need help starting your new business? Visit nibusinessinfo.co.uk slash mynewbusiness. Now let's get back to making it happen. You talked about um, taking your eye off the ball a wee bit when it came to the trends of jewellery. Yeah, so I think as your business, you can set a lot of rules that are not rules. They're just rules you're tying yourself up with. So we became a real market leader in a, in a new sector, which was silver jewellery. And that is that nearly damaged us because we were defining ourselves by the term silver jewellery. The jewellery had to be made of silver. And so we were sourcing all over the world. I'd fly to Mexico, I'd fly Poland, Indonesia, India. We were having a great time, you know, there was a new sector. We were all making money from all over the world. We'd go into Mexico, a big party in Tesco, we'd all buy jewellery and head off. It was great fun. But we'd defined ourselves by silver. And then I was at a wedding, a family wedding, and everybody in the room was getting discount in my shop. And none of the women were wearing my jewellery, you know. So I was like thinking, hold on. And I happened to lean over and said, where did you get that necklace? And she was going, oh, it's Pilgrim, you know. Uh, Ever pilgrim? Does uh, everything uh, It's a big flurry thing. Uh, we uh, and uh, and I just panicked, and I realised everybody was wearing pilgrim, you know. And because pilgrim didn't market themselves to silver jewellery, um, they were tending to sell into ladies' boutiques and chemists and things like that. And it was costume jewellery. So uh, back in the eighties, costume jewellery was everybody. People brought out in a rash. You would remember. You're too young, obviously, but uh, people's ears would because of nickel, so nickel was the problem. And Pilgrim had realized they could make jewelry with no nickel. And uh, so we hadn't realized people were buying silver mainly because it was, uh, it didn't bring you out in a rash. So it was affordable and it uh, was high quality and it didn't have any nickel in it. But Pilgrim had cracked making costume jewelry with no nickel. Well. I went and we had to go to seal. So we had a we had like one point six million pound of stock. We went on the eight month seal. We sold everything that that we we dumped our stock. We got our stock down to like three hundred thousand. We 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 were in seal for eight months. We wanted rid of everything. Uh, we got Pilgrim. I talked to her and she supplied us. So we became their largest client then in the UK. But we knew we needed to get costume jewelry. So. I discovered that there was a trade exhibition in Hong Kong that sold costume jewelry. We flew over to Hong Kong, and then we 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 really nailed it. Uh, and that's I met. That's two, another story. Yeah, it yeah. is will be advice. So we we met two Irish guys at that that used to be street traders on O'Connell Street Bridge. They had both gone open silver stores in New Zealand and Australia, and in Hong Kong, I mean, the guys were saying about sourcing. Somebody was asking a question about sourcing. Sourcing's a problem because as you try to drive down the price, you inevitably drive up the volume. So that becomes a that that's the, the trade-off. You know, do you get go for a volume at low price or do you buy what you need at a slightly higher price? And it's, it's we always were aiming for volume. So I was saying earlier, you know, our goal was always to be buying out the factory door. So wholesalers hated me because I was looking at wholesalers thinking you're charging me a fiver, mate, and I know you're paying a pound for it. Um I was immediately thinking, where did he get it? And if you're in the wholesale business, don't leave suppliers' labels on your boxes. 
So, uh, because the meat ordered goods from somebody, opened the box, and there was the name of the factory in the box, you know. So that was the last thing we bought off your man. You know, we were now phoning the factory. So we sourced stuff direct, and uh, that then led, we split the orders. The guys would take quantity to Australia and New Zealand. So we formed a little buy-in group. We'd order 120, one color, one item. Split it up, I'd take 60, 30 would go to New Zealand, 30 would go to Australia, and that allowed us to buy the volumes out of the factories in China. I thought that was genius in a rare year. I was like, can I not think of that? And I was doing a children's or like, then I was like, oh, the would have been rules, but then you probably didn't listen to the rules. But, you know, the, the buying, like a buying group to try and reach the quantities, I thought that was deadly. Like, yeah, well, it also forced you to open more stores, you know, so you would then go and open, like, and when we would open, I think at that stage we were sitting on about 12 stores. Um, and every time we took on a person to work in head office, I knew I had to open, I had to open a shop to pay their wages. That's roughly, that was roughly the maths, you know. So that person in head office wasn't generating any direct revenue. I had to pay their wages. And we knew the maths around each shop to make profit, but we knew once we had a whole team at head office, say marketing, uh, handling stock, pricing, ticketing, purchasing, every time we added a body at head office, we opened a shop. So that took us to about 22 stores, you know. So again, uh, we were just constantly expanding, you know. And you talked to me about the fact that wasn't always easy. Like, I'm, I, can't even, I can't even imagine, but it did get to like 54 stores then, was yeah, it, at the end? Right up to 60 stores. But that was, again, that was that buying group. So Michael, about a year and a half after I'd met them in Hong Kong, pulled out a little bead and said, my seals have traveled in Australia. And it was Pandora beads. And um, Anybody wear Pandora in the audience? Is there? Yes, there you go. I hope so. <laughs> we're still selling it. Although we're not as we're not their big partner anymore. But they bought us out then. But my seals hadn't trebled. I remember thinking, "God, my seals haven't trebled." But our our initial reaction was, "We'll make our own beads." You know, we'll make an Argento bead. We 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 knew all the factories. We went and got our own beads made. We packaged it all up, and we could see, we did that for about twelve months. And I went back again, and Michael's still sitting in Australia, and he says, "My seals have doubled." And I remember thinking, I've got this wrong. I just, you know, it was like a switch. And I thought, I've got this wrong. I need to get this brand, you know. So I was in Bangkok and I went back to the hotel and I had a few pints. And I think I was on the phone for three hours to this guy trying to get him to supply my stores, you know. And end up he said to me, Pete, you're very enthusiastic. Uh, he said, I'm going to hang up and I'm going to ring some people in the industry and check, you know, if you're, if, if, if you're good to do business with, you know. So... We had a thing where we always paid people on time. So, and we'd pay you early if we could. Um, and so I used to say to the accountant, I had one accountant, he came from the British Army and he had been working in their bars in Northern Ireland buying beer for the bars. And I remember my supplier rang me and he said, Pete, is there something wrong with your business? He says, we haven't had money off you in three months, you know. And I said, I don't know what's wrong, Paul. Uh, like we always pay on time, you know, I'll ring you. <laughs> So I go to the office, the new account, and I says, Paul Kendi says he didn't get paid. He says, oh, we never pay any bill till we get the solicitor's letter. Oh, I was like, I says, well, you don't do that here, but I said, the money is at the bank account. It's not our money. It belongs to your suppliers. You just have to pay. Just keep paying. You know, eventually we'll get some money after everybody's been paid. But you're kidding yourself if you think that money belongs to our company. It just belongs to our suppliers. So when Fandora phoned all our suppliers, he phoned me back 15 minutes later and he said, well, the one thing I've learned, he says, I'll get paid. He says, everybody says, Pete Boy will pay you and he'll pay you on three days. If he's got the money, you'll get paid, you know. 
So I got Pandora. So I asked you about that actually to, before we jump into Pandora. Yes. I said to you, what scares you the most? And you said debt. Well, we didn't like debt, but the one thing that, that out of that was your reputation, you know. So we protected our reputation. You don't get a second crack at reputation. If you blow it, it's a long way back, you know. People trust and uh, a good reputation is vital. I'd say protect it with your life, you know, um, because it's something you need as you go forward. You do not know when uh, someone will, uh, you'll need help. You might need help, you know, from a supplier. You may need extended credit at some stage, but if you've been paying them on time for three or four years. That extended credit won't be a problem, you know, so that's vital. What was the question? Yeah, so no, I jumped in because um, I think our slideshow has went off there, um, if somebody has a look. But um, I jumped in because you were talking about money and paying people on time, and I wanted to touch on that debt yeah. because sometimes in business, the debt can overcome you and you actually can't even um, yeah. lead it with the trees and you have a successful business, but you end up with this debt. So it's yeah. interesting to hear how someone like you navigated that, like with so many shops. Well, the first, when I left Manchester, I was doing aeronautical engineering and... Um, I remember saying to the lecture, what does an aeronautical engineer actually do? And he said, you'll be designing weapon systems. And I was from Strabane. There's no way I was going back through Alden Grove Airport. And he says, what do you do? You know, I design weapon systems. So, <laughs> uh, 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 so that was me dropped out. But they were handing out student loans. The first year of student loan, people call me Thatcher's children. We, my generation apparently are called Thatcher's children. So we grew up in the 80s. It was an awful title. But I suppose it's, it is kind of true. You know, we, we were... We were Enterprise suddenly became something for the first time, you know, that you could do, you could set up a business. I was thinking about father's generation, it really wasn't, it wasn't an option. But I got a student loan was my first, that's what we started the business with. So after I'd done the mirrors, I did a bit of college and then I got a student loan. I bought a car for £180 and I bought a load of damaged posters at the student sale. And I went back for the summer, sold the posters in about three days, bought some jewellery off my friend in Dublin and then this old Austin Maxi. I'd traveled around Ireland, but debt, we were always very cautious of debt. You know, I used to take the notion, look, if it goes badly, I don't, I don't owe anybody any money and I'll just do something else. That was kind of my attitude, you know, so we'd flip money, you know, so if I sold those posters, I think I paid 300 pounds for the posters. I'd flip them into a thousand pounds. I took very little out, you know, uh, we used to go to festivals and I'd go, you deliberately take no money to the festival because if... If you went with money, it might not work, you know. So if you turned up at the festival with a tenor, generally bought you your first meal, you had no money for your B&B or your hostel. So if you didn't earn any money that day, you were sleeping in the car, you know. So it, it, it put a bit of discipline on you. You didn't go to the pub instead of setting up because setting up a stall, I suppose, it's, Instagram's probably the closest thing, you know, where you have to put yourself out there. You open, land in a new town, you open your board and you stand there and you have to speak to strangers. You know, you, it's quite, it can be quite embarrassing at the start. You know, it was quite a, you had to be quite uh, forward, you know, and I suspect social media is the new, is the new street stall. You know, I would, don't think you'd ever, even if you started street trading tomorrow morning, blah, blah, I don't think you'd make any money. It's just not where people spend their time. People are spending their time at digital platform. And so uh, as your startups now, they tend to be digital startups uh, and it's a much easier way to get, get seen, you know. Yeah, and you said about, I know where I'm getting focused on the money, but let's face it, it's all about the money. Um, well, not all, but you know, we are in it to try and, you know, earn yeah. a crust and keep our families going. But you said something really interesting to me and about business owners who are doing real well and the first year we're doing deadly and the second year we're doing deadly, I'm going to buy a big cheap or I'm going to take the money out yeah. of the business cause I'm doing, or put it through the business. And then you were like, no. We never took anything. I, I mean, if I took, 
we, we what it was like a existence, barely existing at the time, you know, like it was just because we knew the capital was the key. So my stockpile had to get bigger. I, eventually I was, had two stalls in Belfast, but each stall controlled about 15,000 pound of stock. So, you know, I had to get to 30,000 pound of capital pretty quickly, you know, and now we're in, you know, Pandora bought uh, 26 of our stores off us about four years ago. So, um, we now have capital and so the business like Let's Go Hydra is a very capital heavy business, you know, so you had to buy the land, you had to uh, invest in the site. And so capital is what make your business. And I watched a piece with Warren Buffett about compound interest and he talks about how if you have a pound, you turn it into two, two to four, four to six. He said, if you buy yourself a sandwich at the, at, when you make the two pound, when you, at the end of the day, you're sitting at half a million, not a million in the same time of space, you know, it can be if you take money out very early, it has a massive compound Im- impact on your on your overall growth of your capital, you know. And so, I hadn't thought about it at the time, but the money uh, the money in the business at the time for me didn't feel like mines. That was and that was a good that was a good thing. So my mates would all say, "You made a lot of money. We'll go to the pub. Come on, uh, sure that'll do you. You know, it's six o'clock on a Friday. You've made plenty. Let's go." And I'd be like, "No, I have to stay here. You know, I have to get up tomorrow morning at eight to be here again. You know." And they could never get it. But for me, the money that was in the business was just more stock. It was just more uh, jewelry. And I knew I had to grow it. I knew it wasn't going to be stand on the street forever. Um, it was only going to be fun while I was 20. <laughs> it wasn't going to be so much fun when I was 52, you know. So uh, you had to, there had to be a progress. There had to be a way out. And we really, I mean, up to, I remember my wife saying to me, and we had about 10 shops, why are we not rich, you know? And I was like, well, we will be eventually, you know, but we opened five stores last year and that all our money went out to open those five stores. And that's quite a shock too, because I, that year we got a big tax bill. And uh, I remember saying to my accountant, but I have no money. And he said to me, uh, How many people say that whenever the tax bill comes in? And he said, and, uh, I was like, well, how am I getting such a big tax bill? He said, well, all your profit, Pete, you put into to jewelry, you know, and shop fits. And he says, that's, that's capital depreciation over 10 years. You can't. I thought it was an overhead, you know, I thought I could take the, uh, the 100000 I spent shop fit, that would be a cost against my business, it turns out it wasn't, you, you had to write it off over 10 years, and so it was quite a shock to get handed this bill, and I actually had to borrow money to pay pay the tax bill, because we'd done, and that was what they call over trading too, that was like expanding too fast, and uh, and that nearly killed us, that was like a really difficult period, because we'd expanded so fast, growth was so key, you know, we were going at such a speed that that we really, the cash wasn't keeping up. And so the person then that comes along looking for his piece as the tax man, you know, he comes along and then he says, register for VAT. And that's another shock, you know. So the transition from uh, trading without VAT to trading with VAT isn't, is quite a, you know, I wish somebody had told me about that because it would have made my life a lot easier, you know, so. Yeah, there's a lot of unknowns in business, I suppose. Would you say then just flip and ask the question to everybody? Like, I think people are afraid to think there's stupid. More, there's more information there than there was, you know. VAT, yeah. uh, uh, I'd recommend, you know, if you know you're growing, just register and get on, you know, register at the start. Don't wait till you reach the threshold. Register now because you'll get into a better habit of of getting it right. And it won't be such a shock when you reach the threshold. So if you're a startup, I, would, I, I wish I'd registered earlier. Um, uh, you know, Nowadays, cash, cash, there's not a lot of cash. Our days, there was a lot of cash kicking about. People were trading in cash. Nobody was paying any tax. No income tax, no VAT, no money back, no guarantees. Like, <laughs> uh, I went to London at the weekend and I lost my bank card, so I went into Dungannon and took money out of the bank. Yeah. To, to, I was going on yeah. a wee girl's trip. 
I came back with it. Nobody would take it. I, everywhere I went, I was sorry, sorry, we don't take cash. I, would, I, I came back with girls that are with me here in the audience and they were laughing at me. I came back with the exact same money. So cash isn't like, nobody, nobody wants it. Well, we were, I mean, I was street trader and I was very lucky. I had a couple of guys give me good advice at an old street trader. And I was angry at a guy who'd opened a shop. Take, it was a friend of mine who'd opened a shop almost identical to mine called Sorrento. And, and he was picking friends, you know, and I was so angry at him. And I wanted to open a shop next door to him and show him, you know. And I told Martin, I said, I'm going to show him. I'm going to open a shop. And Martin says, we never make decisions for negative reasons. He said, if it's not good for you, don't do it. You know, if it's not, you know, if you're only doing it to hurt someone else, it's a bad, don't, don't make that decision. That was worthy, you know. Um, and so... The other thing was my accountant once, I went to buy, I wanted to open a surf school in, in Ross Nyland, County Donegal, and I had 15,000 in a supermarket bag from street trading that summer, you know, so, and the house was 115,000, and I, I thought I'd teach surfing, this would be my life, and I went with my supermarket bag to the bank manager to borrow, you know, try and get a mortgage, and my father said to me, Peter, you do know interest rates are 15%, so... Kind of puts things in perspective at 3% per current. But uh, my solicitor then leaned over and said to me, Pete, he says, cash will get you nowhere. He said, um, he said to me, cash is only good for pissing up against a wall, as he said to me. <laughs> and, uh, and he was right, you know, again, yeah. we had gone through this period of growth early on with street trading. And that stage then, I, I registered with the county, we started paying our taxes. Um, and because that's, if you wanted real growth, and I was very lucky those people were there to advise me, you know, that really Pete, you know, you can only move forward with legitimate growth. You know, you, you, that's a, cash is fine when you're young and you're uh, early, but I think that's even more exaggerated now because I would say in Argento, we take cash, but it's it's a pain in the ass. People steal it. I mean, that's uh, all those things you see on the internet. Oh, keep cash alive because you get your tenor and you give your tenor to the butcher and the butcher gives it to the thing. and the, 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 That's nonsense because some staff member puts the tenor in their pocket, but the butcher's. And the butcher never sees the tenor, you know, so yeah. we, we've had so many big cash thefts out of our company over the years. You know, we we love cards because it goes straight to the bank account. We don't have to pay a guy with an armored vehicle to come down and empty the shop. Uh, cash creates a lot of problems. And so, I mean, if you're a young startup and the money ends up straight in your account, you know, that's 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 pretty cool. Um, and God, you can talk all day about all the different topics, but talk to us now that was so Pandora came on and things went crazy and all the shops, like you told me about driving there, was at Waterford overnight and opening your shop in a week? Pandora, so we got it in the shop and I said it ended up in the warehouse and the, it was the first product ever I'd bought where the girls in the warehouse opened the box and by the time they'd taken it, uh, got it to send to the shop, they'd already bought half the, half the product before it even got it. I remember thinking, oh God, I phoned the guy. I says, you better send three times as much, mate. That's, I've sold it before it even got to the shop, you know. And then it just took off. And then it, that was like a hugely stressful thing. We, I guess it's my made it stressful. We wanted to make the most. We'd found this product and we really wanted to, we put it in there 15 stores and then it just took off like a rocket, you know. So we went from about a 5 million pound turnover business to 60 million, you know, in, a, in about four years. At one stage, we were opening nine shops a year. You know, I was never in the house. I, like, How did that go down? Well, it was all right. We were babies and nappies, so I was glad to be in the house. As we said, so, uh, everybody tells you that they're going away, and it's a great, uh, it was a great pain. It actually was, uh, it wasn't so painful. It was more painful for my wife, thank you, Kira. But, uh, uh, you know, I had to be away at that time. Um, and so 
that's interesting about entrepreneurship. People say it's all good. It, just, it puts strain on your life. It causes stress. It puts strain on your family. Um, so be careful what you wish for and make sure you know that it fits with you. So it's not all good news in entrepreneurship. I find this constant obsession with entrepreneurship at the minute, um, it's not always, you know, there's, there's downsides, you know, like there's... Uh, Talk about that. Talk about that. Well, if you're good at it, it'll eat your brain, you know. So at... I, there's nights I don't sleep. You know, there's just a few you're constantly obsessed with the health of your enterprise, and that's what good entrepreneurship is. You know, it, you put it before everything else, family, uh, relationships. It's just about the health of the enterprise. It's about how can I make this enterprise better, 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 better. And uh, one of the things I did was I projected my um, my personality onto my friends. So I'd you know someone they would see what I was doing, and say, "Oh, I want to open a business," and I'd set it all up for them or help them and get them started, and then it would all go wrong, you know. And I used to get really annoyed at them, you know. I'd say, why did you not do this, and why did you not do that? And it took me till I was about 35 to realize I was projecting me onto them, and they were getting, re- it was really it was really hurting them. They were getting stressed. They were getting into bad situations, and they actually weren't entrepreneurs, you know. But I had, to me, it was just so easy. I thought, are you stupid? I used to scream. I was talking to my friend Endeavor last night, and he was one of the victims. He ended up opening a a shop and all, and he says to me, I was never a businessman, Pete. I hated it, you know, and uh, he says, but, and I had projected onto him, and, he, and so you've got, you've got to be careful, it doesn't suit everybody, and it can, it can be stressful, it can be lonely, it can ruin relationships, you know, uh, because you're on a, you're on a, you're so focused, nothing else matters, you know, uh, I remember my family, I probably hadn't been at a birthday party, for for five years, I'm not talking about my wife. I'm talking about my brothers, sisters, and weddings. I I just didn't. I was away. If something came up in the summer, I was I was so focused on that Hong Kong trade exhibition. Couldn't miss it. Had to be in Hong Kong and in September. And there were always things in September, you know. But I simply had to spend that week in Hong Kong buying product, you know. So there, there's definitely downsides, you know. So it's not all it's not all rosy. <laughs> I know, I think that's so interesting because we're so obsessed with it, I know, and I feel so guilty, like the title of my podcast is Making It Happen, but I, I we're going to have people up on the stage later, and one of their Making It Happens was getting more time with their family, it wasn't about right. the money or the, you know, the success or whatever, so Making It Happen means different things, it's so interesting for you, but do you think if you had a, went to the birthday parties and did all them things, that you would be as um, successful as you are now? Definitely not. Oh, I know, so you have to weigh up, like... Uh. Look, look, don't be wrong, that's my, it's in me. It's in you. And then, um, I just loved work. The first day I arrived at my first job, I just loved it. Do you know? I just thought, that's it. I like doing this. So you never really talked me into going to work. I was first there. So street trading said to me, you had to get there first in the morning. I remember one time in Bali Shannon, I always had the best pitch, and Harry Krishna's turned up with her chain bills. And I arrived the Friday, and Harry Krishna were sitting in my pitch, and I'd had this pitch for seven years. And I said, Harry, I love that. And every, all the other traders were saying, that's Pete's pitch, you know, you'll have to go. Harry's are like, no, no, definitely not. You know, he's not here. Well, I just thought, well, you see tomorrow morning, I'll be here. So I parked the van up from the corner and I slept in the van at four o'clock in the morning. I was, I had my pitch back, you know, so, uh, but so, uh, you know, I have, like, for me, work was just, and my wife will tell you it's the same. It's just, I'm running out of energy right now. I'm 52. I'm not quite, I'm not quite as, uh. Game as I was at 25, you know. But I think you're, you know, you're well entitled to take a wee rest there <laughs> after all you've achieved. But like, I, I'm raging. This is only half an hour that I can yeah. fit in with you. But 
Um, like, I was fascinated. I've been talking about you to everybody since I met you um, last week because it's that a re- that realism that, you know, does kind of take over your life, your business sometimes. But um, I suppose your wife knew what she got, what she was getting when she got to you. Yeah. Kira's been very good to me because, like, she, she keep, you know, she did remind me that there was other things to do apart from work. And, uh, and so she kept, she entered it just on the balance for me. Um, and... She was right when I mean, she realised we had to open a store, you know. Uh, actually, the funny thing about my street stalls was uh, they always sat in the garage for about a year and a half and then these two boys from Porta Down said they would buy them off me, so I showed them stuff. And the next day they stole it all overnight, you know. And, uh, and uh, I'll get those Porta Down guys of it. But uh, I haven't seen them since right enough. But, uh, but my wife, the next day, I was like bemoaning the fact that my stalls have been stolen and she said, you know what, it's a good thing because... There's no going back now. Like, yeah. uh, there's certainly no way back. And it, it kind of dawned on me a week later. Actually, that's great. Because like, that's gone. That part of my life is, is behind me. And I, I don't have to like, worry about it. You know? So I said to Pete when I was leaving. So Pete's new home that they've renovated is called Ormiston House. If anybody wants to look it up on Instagram. When they sent me where I was going to meet him, I thought I was going to like a block of like building like offices. You're going to meet Pete Ormiston House. I was like, oh, I did on. And I was like, Oh my god! I should have worn a fascinator. This like castle, <laughs> and it was—it's unreal. But we were standing in the foyer when I was leaving, and I said to Pete, "Like, do you ever just think, like, oh my god, like, how is this mine?" And you said to me, "Do you remember what you said?" No. Um, you never rest on your laurels. Yeah. You never take it for granted. Well, it's, 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 it's like it was an awesome thing to have done. You know, um, it was the end of our street. That's how we bought it, and uh, and then you know, my wife said her. Why aren't we rich? And I said, we'll get the money eventually. Well, that was the day that we got the money eventually. So, uh, I mean, we did this project. It was four years of our life uh, restoring it, you know. Um, and it was, a, it was an awesome thing. I don't think I'll do another one. It was kind of exhausting. But in general, I mean, rest on your laurels in life and business. You you said to me, like, you don't take it for granted what you got because you literally started with nothing. Oh, I mean... It, don't write your story in some ways you know you just read it back <laughs> so you, you look back at your story you know I, mean, I, I didn't have it all written to get to here you know and so uh it's our home you know so we wake up running yet and it's most amazing at night because i was coming in last night from the pub at about half past 11 and it's pitch dark and at that time it's very very beautiful in the silent snowy darkness and that's uh at those times yes you, you have to laugh and think how do we end up here you know from the market stall to that amazing building. But so what advice um would would you give um to people and I've ended the podcast on every podcast in the series with this, um, who are struggling in whatever way to make it happen. And whether that be more time with family, more money in the bank, and um, more success, what would you say in general to making it happen? Well, like I use the term self awareness. It's very important that you stop and examine where you are now. It's a bit like me saying that thing that I'm not the underdog. I mean, I had said a quick comment in this company that we were in at a table that would have been funny when I was a street trainer with nothing, but no one laughed at this comment because I hadn't realized I was now not an underdog. I was seen as a, as a big player, and it wasn't a funny comment anymore for someone who was a big player. So that is be be aware of what you want, of where you are now. Don't mistake where you were with where you are now. Your your situation changes, you know. Uh, I mean, startups are quite funny. You can get a lot of stuff for free as a startup. You know, BBC will do a piece about you, you know, da 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 If we go to UTV now, they say, there's the, there, it was 35,000, mate, you know. We're not writing about you. 
So uh, as a startup, use those benefits, but you must be self-aware of where, you know, what do you want? What makes you happy? What won't make you happy? Make sure you don't go down the, the wrong uh, direction with things um, and and be lucky, hopefully. <laughs> you know, we've been very lucky uh, along the line. I opened a surf shop in 95 in Ross and Isla, and I had a tenner left, and I remember I'd painted the shop, and this wee man walked into me, and he says to me, you do realise it'll rain all summer and you'll lose everything. <laughs> and now the last day of May, and the sun came out, and it was the hottest year in 100 years, and I had I had sun cream and ice cream on a beach in Ross and Isla, and uh, it didn't rain. I think it rained two days between May and September, so sometimes you need a lot of luck, you know, uh, and... And you just be grateful when the lucky lucky things come along, you know. If you're unlucky, don't bother or just maybe find something else. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to another episode of The Dig Podcast. It's an absolute privilege to be your host every week and to spend time with the most driven, inspirational people. Don't forget to tag us on social at Dig for Success if you enjoyed this week's conversation. And until next week, keep taking those steps to making it happen in your business and in your life.